Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hi, fam, and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Thank you so much for joining me today. It means so much to have you all checking in and joining in every week, even as we get closer to Christmas and this holiday period. Before we get started on today's episode, I do want to do some reminders at the very top. First of all, please go and check out our merch. There is two candles I think left. There literally is only two left. So if you do want to be one of the lucky ones that gets their hands on this limited edition merch, then please go to the show notes for this episode and have a look at the ones that are left. Um, They've sold out a lot faster than usual. We might do another drop with the Feminist Candle Co, but it won't be for a bit, at least for a month or so. And these designs probably won't be done again. So just letting you know that it's your last chance to get in for some of these designs. Second of all, Thank you for your continued support. You are helping me so much by leaving the ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. The subscriber rates and everything 
really do help. So if you haven't already done that, please take five minutes to go and do that. It is one of the best ways that you can support podcasters like me who are putting in so many hours of work each week and, you know, trying our best to get the word out there. It's not the easiest thing to get these things up and running and it is a lot of effort. Um, I don't mean to do a sob story about it, but I just wanted to highlight that there are some really simple ways that you can support podcasts like this without having to financially contribute as well. Now, third thing is that we have the Survivor Support Network. And I, if you haven't already signed up, if you go to the show notes, you'll see a link to the Survivor Support Facebook group. And it's literally just a group of peers with lived experience in different things or for allies to join. Now, I really love this community that we're building here. It's just a bunch of people that are each other's people. It's a a place where you can find friends. It's a place where you can share information. It's a place where you can share pictures of your animals or ask questions about upcoming criminal trials or seek advice. Or, you know, it's a very wonderful place to be able to connect with your fellow peers rather than sometimes that feeling I think many of us have in common, which is that we might not want to talk to our friends and family about this as much or a crisis person, but we do want to reach out to some form of community. So don't forget that that's also there for you. Now, this weekend, we've also got an online event that one of our fellow survivors and people who's been on this podcast, Chris, thank you so much, Chris, has organized and will organize for us. So there's going to be some games, some online chat. If you're in the right time zone, maybe you can join us for a drink. If not, don't worry about it. There will be many more things coming up uh, as we get into the new year and we've got more time to organize these wonderful things as well onto the show, but I did want to give an additional quick warning about this week's episode that we will be talking about crimes that happened to a child and sexual abuse of a child. So in this episode, we're not going to go into too much detail, but I did want to give that additional trigger warning at the beginning if that's something that it's too difficult for to listen to some people, or just so that at least you've got the additional warning there so that if you want to take your time listening to it, that you can. But if there was one person that would be able to discuss this topic and make it very palatable for many of you, it is our next guest, Jen. Hello. Welcome, Hello. Jen. <laughs> I have Hi. Jen joining me now. She is my yeah. neighbor from yeah. South Australia, and I'm so happy Across to Across the border. <laughs> I, know, I actually don't think we've had anybody on from South Australia oh, true. before. So. There you go. There's a lot of East Coast babies that have been on this <laughs> podcast, but I have not had a South Coast baby. So welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I loved our initial chat that we had and we went mm. into a little bit about where you're from. Do you mind telling the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're sure. from, all those wonderful things? <laughs> who am I? It's a big question. <laughs> it's actually, a, I got asked it the other day and I was like, what do I say? Because <laughs> there's so many facets, hey. It's like, yeah. oh, there's like personal, professional, historical, like current, and then like 60 other things too. So literally. I'll um let me know if I'm rambling. I also just um took my next lot of ADHD meds. So I'm hopefully gonna be pretty on track, fingers crossed. But <laughs> just flash me a sign if I'm like really <laughs> rambling. Um <laughs> Uh, So I'm Jen. I am 31 years old. Uh, I'm coming to you from the lands of the Bowendick people in kind of the southeast of South Australia. I've lived kind of most of my life 
uh, or most of my childhood in the southeast of South Australia. And then as I got a bit older or kind of like my late teens, I kind of ventured out and have ended up living kind of across many, many spots in, in Australia um, and have wound my way back to to SA again, weirdly enough. Um, I'm a social worker by trade um, and mainly I've done work in child and adolescent mental health settings, um, uh, some in remote community work, um, some with like vulnerable families and a little bit of work with um, young kids who are, who are in the juvenile justice system, transitioning out of that, um, kind of how to scaffold their mental health in that process. Um, but that was kind of up until a couple of years ago um, when I had a bit of a breakdown um, for reasons that we will shortly discuss. Um, but I think it is super common to, hey, like so many people with abuse histories uh, find their way into helping roles, you know, whether it's teaching, nursing, um, healthcare roles, social work, psych, you know, you kind of see like this really high prevalence of people who, you know, because they've really faced some of their own shit. Um, they have this sense or this calling, if you like, to to care for others. Yeah. Um, and that it's one, it's a wonderful thing. Um, but they're also really grueling roles, you know. And you do get exposed to uh, vicarious trauma through through the clients that you work with and the families that you work with. Um, and that trauma can definitely hit on some of your own. <laughs> and that's that's definitely what where I got to a couple of years ago. I think I'd kind of hit a bit of a patch of burnout um, and definitely rooted in in not taking care of myself and my own trauma, to be honest. Um, and it kind of, the vicarious trauma mixed with my own had this cumulative effect that I kind of reached a point where I went, oh, I don't actually feel like I'm in a good enough space to actually be caring for others. I think I've got to stop and, and uh, figure some of my own shit out. Um so that there is that capacity to to care for myself and then for others. Uh, so, yeah, I sort of took a step back from, like, client-facing work um, and in that process um, then found my way somewhat probably misguidedly <laughs> into a um, PhD program, um, <laughs> so, which isn't, like, the chillest transition <laughs> Yeah, I'm suffering a bit from burnout. I might start a PhD. I, <laughs> I think because my head at the time, like I'd come from this really intense, like I loved the work I was doing, but it was in like intense and, and high risk. Like you are working with people who are really vulnerable um, and more so like risk to themselves um, because their own mental health is bad and not bad. Sorry, I should use another term for that. I think a risk to themselves because they're struggling with mental health and circumstances in their lives. And so there's this kind of sense where you like get home every night and every weekend and you're thinking about those kids that are on your list of kids that you're caring for and you're like, fuck, I, are they okay? Like we've done everything we can, but they are facing some really rough shit and, um, and there's nothing you can actually do to change those circumstances. So I think in comparison to like the kind of stress that I was experiencing in client-facing work, like the idea of just sitting in an office doing research was like, oh, that's going to be so chill. Like, oh, that's nothing. I love Actually, that for you, just, though. Because <laughs> like, it's actually, like you just said as well that you've, you've got ADHD. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. 
it's just textbook. Like you've gone from Peak. one project to the next major project. And I'm sitting there thinking about you having to research for long periods of time. Seriously. <laughs> like just peak ADHD. It was like, oh, I can't, like I'm flat out, I'm burnt out. Let's just get on to a new idea, a new interesting thing. Which of course is like that initial like, oh my God, this is fantastic. Like I have all this time I can research to my heart's content. And there's some lovely things about doing a PhD, but there's also like, it's fucking hard work and it's just a different kind of stress. And certainly if you then find out that you have a touch of the uh, neurodiversity kicking around, (laughs) uh, you know, the kind of structures that a PhD operates in, uh, they're not that accessible for diverse brains. And I would argue diverse life experiences, um, and things like mental health and trauma. So that's been interesting. Again, I've had my own processes while I was doing the PhD. What it did do was give me, I think, enough time and space from like direct um, client work to start to address some of my own uh, trauma stuff. But naturally, once you start doing that, more stuff comes up, you know, like it's not it's not that you start to look at your trauma and you feel better a lot of the time. It's you start to look at your trauma and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, yeah. There's a lot here. You t- you, you've, like, you've unraveled one thread yeah. here and it's just pulled the rest of them open like, oh, God. Yeah, you're like, oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> no, I didn't. It's great to see you doing the PhD as well and taking the break from mm. client-facing work, I think, because you've got mm. that specialist skill set and just mm. because you felt like you weren't able to for a period of time, be client facing because of a lot mm. of those different things to be able to utilize your skill set still. And mm. this is what I see a lot of people in um, government, even without the aspect of trauma, you know, always mm. thinking, I'm a teacher, I'm going to have to always be a teacher. And yeah. then transitioning into different like uh, leadership roles, people and culture yeah. roles, government roles. Yeah. And it's, it's just great to see people, you know, you just because that's your qualification doesn't means specifically that's the only thing that you can do. So it's great to yes. see that you've been able to go, not for me right now. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. look at my other options. Yeah. And that there are so many pathways to achieve the goal, if for lack of a better term, as in if, like if I think of what is it about working in child and adolescent mental health or working with vulnerable kids and their families, what is it about that that appeals to me? What are my core values that are really fulfilled when I do that work? Well, those core values also are very, you know, those values of of social justice, of of challenging systems and and advocating for people who are disadvantaged by systems. Those values also can work out in other roles, in lots of other roles and in so many different pathways. Yeah, so it's been cool to kind of have, like think, I think, a bit more broadly um, about ways to still live out those values and and contribute to the community, um, but also in a way that leaves a bit of space for uh, periods where we're doing kind of direct client work with that vicarious trauma aspect um, it isn't doable. Uh, it doesn't mean that's the end of the line in terms of helping people, you know. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's been interesting. So, so yeah, that's where I'm at the moment. I'm, I'm slowly... Uh, slowly working away at a PhD, <laughs> um, and you know, finding finding all the ups and downs of doing that, and also all of the ups and downs of engaging with with what it means to live with trauma, um, rather than you know ignoring it or running away from it, which is what I I spent a good amount of time doing. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I guess that's a yeah. good um transition because you are here also 
uh, to share a little bit of your story mm. and yeah, um, what that trauma means for you and what what mm. kind of it was that you were experiencing as you were going through working as well. Do you mm. mind telling the listeners about where where this started for you? Yeah, for sure. And I want to preface this too because I like there's a lot of really really valuable discourse around like terminology. Um, around terms like victim and survivor or people with experience of. Um, and I kind of love any and all of those discussions because I think anything that broadens um, the kind of terms that we use that allows people to then find themselves in it, you know what I mean? Like find their identity. Like some people really don't identify with the term victim and really identify with the term survivor. Some people hear the term has experience of sexual assault and go, oh, yeah, no, that's me, but I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, I'm a victim or a survivor. So I think anything that, um, any discussion that that broadens the scope of of how people with those lived experiences can find themselves in it, I think is so valuable. For me personally, I've been doing tons and tons of thinking around this stuff and for reasons that will probably make more sense as I talk, um, the context that I was in uh, when I had my trauma experiences was really limiting around how I could talk about those experiences. And um, and there were certain frameworks that really shut down um, the idea of being able to identify as a victim. And so for me personally, it's something I'm doing a lot at the moment is I'm really drawn to the term victim. But I want to preface that for for people listening like I understand that that victim can be a term in relation to sexual violence and child sex abuse that for some people really doesn't doesn't gel for valid it. reasons. Yeah, super and valid I've always, reasons. Yeah, like, I always um, <laughs> highlight that here because, like, you know, at the same time, I uh, even in the description of this, it, I say it's told mm. by the aspects of the victim survivors, but mm. it's just an encompassing term. And I personally yeah. like being referred to also as a victim. And mm. I think it was Kathy Oddy came on and I quoted her on that. And she said, victim acknowledges the harm, survivor mm. acknowledges the processes you've gone through after. Yeah. And yeah. in that. my mind, that's how I frame it. I mm. think some people like to see survivor as you're not victimized, you're not a victim, you're yeah. somebody new. Yeah. Some people yeah. like to acknowledge the pain. And that's the same thing, yeah. you know. We talk about us all being in different places. There's mm. no one mm. size fits all thing, but Absolutely. what we can create is a community that is completely open. And yeah. then some somebody wouldn't feel then uncomfortable to say, um, I actually don't identify as a victim survivor. Do you mind referring to me as somebody who has experienced? Yeah. And that wouldn't be weird or awkward. It would just nah. be completely cool. Yeah, like, yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah, and I think we're all at different, like I've shifted. So I used to be really attached to the term survivor. Um, I think because for a really long period of time, I didn't want to acknowledge that my trauma experiences had impact on me. Um, and so I used the term survivor to kind of mean like I'm separate from that, like who I am now is separate from that. Mm. Um, whereas then I had a long period of time of kind of going, okay, I'm starting to have to acknowledge the impact on me, yeah. both at the time, the harm at the time, but also the lifelong harm that this stuff does have. Um, and so through that process, I'm just finding at the moment, I really identify with the term victim. Um, so I, but I wanted to kind of explain that a little before I started chatting about my experiences and just kind of use it offhand. Like it's not a term that I'm using without an awareness 
I guess, of of the the fact that others feel really differently and like in super valid ways. Like yeah. uh, I agree with all of it. <laughs> yeah. And who and knows I love in that. like a year's time I might feel totally differently and identify with something completely different, you know, completely 100%. new. Yeah. And my experience yeah. has been the same as well. Like, mm. but I always felt really weird about saying survivor because I had a connection mm. of survivor being somebody who only who has been through something like a house fire or like has right. been yeah. resuscitated from sure and I yeah. had that very literal somebody mm. who and rather than not specifically always being in in the throes of death but being in yeah. a life-threatening situation and I think that yeah. comes back to as well the way that sexual assault specifically and child sexual assault mm. ends up kind of being blamed on a lot of children and women. Mm. So you have this mm. internalized minimization that goes on. Yeah. So it is difficult to identify totally. with any label because it's like, yeah. I don't even know how I feel about this because I'm still kind of experiencing yeah. some guilt over something I had no control 100%. over. 100%. And like literally, I mean, I'll get into my story in a second because people like just get to it. But <laughs> like I literally, literally today, just this morning, I was like, there's a, I'll probably talk possibly in an upcoming episode um, about some child sexual abuse that I experienced in like an institutional setting. It was in a, a religious group that I was a part of. Um, and there was a range of um, kind of abuse that happened there over about a four year period. Um, and I've been sort of slowly putting together. I guess some details about that abuse for for a certain purpose, um, and there's one specific incident that involved uh, like an adult leader um, digitally penetrating me and um, molesting me while we were at a youth group event um, at the beach. Um, and even this morning, I was walking around thinking of um, people that I used to know in that environment. And how if they ever heard what I had to say about that that incident, they would think I was lying. Um, and I had this intense feeling of like, am I lying? Like, am I a liar? Is this even real? I know this is real. <laughs> like this is this is a, an incident that definitely happened. I have witnesses to it and and it's something that I've lived with and remembered for a decade and a half, decade. In, I was 14 at the time. So like. I don't know, 16 years. I know, like, cognitively I can know it's real, but there's still that peace, that peace in, like, your soul that just goes, like, like, are you sure? You know, like, are you? and and even if you know it's real, do you really want to pursue it, though? Like, do you really want to make a big deal about it? You know, like, yeah. that is still there. And, and that, you know, and I found myself feeling that even this morning and going like, wow, how powerful is that small, small voice, you know, that, that all of our socialization builds in us yeah. um, to doubt, to doubt ourselves and to kind of, or at the very least to minimize um, our experience. Yeah. yeah. It's a social, it's a societal, it's community based yeah. gaslighting. Absolutely. Uh, leaves victim survivors or however you identify to literally mm. second guess everything. And that's why these are underreported. That's why there's mm. so much shame and guilt around it. Like there's so much that we internally blame, but we have to also look outside to the systems, policies, 
and processes that surround all of these things. And, you know, even the other day, and we will get to your thing, I I love this conversation though. The other day (laughs) my mum, it was an incident that had been uh, portrayed on the news and it was a football player who had groped somebody inappropriately. And my mum I have been raging about this incident. I can't even tell you. My mum to anyone who will listen. Yeah, literally. Um, she kind of initially blamed the girl, and she was like, "Why don't they mm-hmm. ever leave them alone?" Mm-hmm. Um, the reference to hussy was made, and I was yeah. like, "Yeah." And I literally we had the chat, and I was like, "Check yourself." There was a mm-hmm. checking; it was okay, but it was yeah. like, "Yeah." You need to understand that when people go, but we do believe survivors and we are in this place and it's just Mm. like, but you don't initially. And that's the feeling that everybody has. And when majority of people around you are perpetuating these same views. Absolutely. How can it not negatively impact the people who have experienced those things? So true. And interesting, I was just listening to, which let me plug away, um, if you get a chance, the so Samson, which is the survivors and mates support network. I think I've got that right. That's um so that's a support service um specifically for male survivors of child sexual abuse. Um and they put together this like documentary podcast called Stronger. Definitely listen if you haven't, it's so, so, so good. Um and obviously it sort of speaks directly to um, male experiences because those are so often um, under undershared even in the survivor space. Um, they're, they're undershared stories. So it's a really good podcast. But uh, Robert Fitzgerald, who was, I think he was like the head of the Royal Commission or one of the conveners of the Royal Commission, he spoke about how the Royal Commission, their research found that while um, post-Royal Commission we're seeing that like sexual abuse gets investigated more convictions remain as low as they were pre so that says to me that great while the system is now going oh i guess we should at least investigate when there's a complaint bottom line a jury of peers continues to say csa child sexual abuse don't convict so that says to me there's like massive issues in community belief and attitudes that bottom line in the community our ultimate response, like you say, is that instinct of like, oh, but can you really trust what a child says? Can you really trust what that victim is saying? How do we know? Is it should we ruin this man's life based on the based on the emotional words of, of this person? You know, that's still community instinct. And that's actually shown up in conviction rates. That conviction while all this awareness has increased, conviction rates have stayed the same yeah. in CSA cases. That is staggering. That's an incredible insight into the application and different things to show that policies and procedures need to be challenged and changed. And seeing that in the last, you know, two or three stories that we've been sharing on this podcast, if you're listening to this now, you would have heard the previous podcast from Mm. Holly Harris and Maddie Lane who are coming out. Those two people have had different experiences with juries and with sentencing and everything. And I think the thing at the end of the day is that 12 people that are not trained in a certain area that are just given some basic guidelines to follow and given the definition, not the definition of reasonable doubt, but the statement no. that reasonable doubt is what you interpret it to be. Yeah. It becomes something that is unattainable to per- yes. to prosecute somebody depending on their non-factual defense. So, yeah, you know, I think 
you know, what we're seeing is these cases and the court system and the the judiciary system seems to be a process that is a performance. Who provides the best performance? Who's the most convincing actor or actress on the day Mm. rather than what does the facts and evidence tell us in alignment with probabilities and yeah what is a meaningful examination of these circumstances like yeah no not at all not throwing gender stereotypes and children stereotypes into the mix to try and generate reasonable doubt based on the fact that somebody was 12 at the time Mm. um that's not a fair representation or trying Mm. to in like in i don't know enlist somebody's misogynistic views yes by highlighting certain things about what a girl was wearing or whatever. Yeah. That's not probative evidence, but it's a tactic no. used to create yeah. reasonable doubt. Yeah, because it taps into those natural biases that we, the collective we hold. Mm. Um, yeah, and that fundamentally means that it's a system not fit for purpose, when, particularly in relation to sexual crimes. Uh, yeah. It's just not. literally yeah there was actually um i don't know if you've read this or come across this in your phd research but there's a Mm. book called why women are blamed for everything by dr jessica (laughs) taylor i haven't but i'm gonna check it out (laughs) so she generated that book on her as her phd thesis um and she basically went into victim blaming norms and what that basically she tried to generate questions and questionnaires I'm only halfway through it um Mm. but based on victim blaming normalities and she would provide a series of different uh, scenarios to certain people and Mm. it would go from one side the the offender is completely um like responsible on the other Mm. side the victim is responsible for the sexual offenses that's occurred and mm. the results were just staggering. Do you know what I mean? So mm. if a, a girl, uh, one of the scenarios is a girl is in a club and she's wearing a short skirt, she's been drinking a little bit, You've been, they've been dancing provocatively together on the floor, he then mm. attacks her in an alley after. What's the scale at which it would be at her fault? And a lot of people yeah. didn't put the blame specifically on the offender, but they mm. put the blame onto her because of the actions beforehand. You know, yeah. some of that that comes through and it's just like our community understanding and mindsets of sexual assault is so geared towards victim blaming, we don't yeah. understand it. Yeah, yeah. And it is, it's at that deep instinctual level. So even when you don't, like, you know, even when people won't believe that they believe those things, um, it's that really intrinsic socialised um, core beliefs that... Yeah that you work a lot you work a lifetime to to undo you know within yourself and then in your response to others like all of us do that's what it means to be in a patriarchal capitalist fucking hellhole um <laughs> like um we all spend our lifetimes unpicking that shit right um <laughs> if that's not the episode title i don't know what else it could be I'm writing it down. Yeah. What was I like it? Patriarchal it. capitalist hellhole. Patriarchal <laughs> capitalist hellhole. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So all of us have these instinctual biases, including victim survivors. Mm. Like we have it, we, we use it against ourselves and then sometimes against each other and then against the broader world as well. All of us have this, but it's a matter of having to bravely and uncomfortably keep challenging that. Um, yeah. Which I think victim survivors do because, we have to do it for ourselves, but I think the broader community, I don't know, man, I'm, sometimes I really struggle to feel that there's a lot of buying, I've got to say. Like, you know, I hope there is and will be more, but um, sometimes it's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Completely agree. Uh, anyway, speaking of depressing, let me tell you about <laughs> Segway. What a transition. <laughs> <laughs> trauma. <laughs> makes trauma. People, uh, we're not we're not laughing at the yeah. trauma. It's a tra- like it's so funny because I feel like sometimes I need to explain because we can see each other, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. When when people listen sometimes and they say things like, you know, Tara Newell was on and she explained how she killed the man who attacked her yeah. and she kind of giggled yeah. and she was like, it's not funny, but like, yeah, yeah. Trauma. <laughs> Trauma. <laughs> you, you don't know how else to say it. Like, it's awkward yeah. a bit, like 
<laughs> yeah, I've got these like really fine-tuned like management skills. <laughs> and one of them is definitely a sense of humor. Um I love it. but proceed <laughs> with the trauma. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> into something much less fun. Um so I I have oh, I have I don't even know where it's that. I am a victim of child sexual abuse. So I sort of have two distinct periods, unfortunately, with different offenders. And this is something that I will put out there, but we'll get back to at some point because otherwise I'll go on another another tangent. But it is something that does happen. People who have um, earlier childhood experiences of CSA um, then have other experiences of sexual violence into their teens um, and into their early 20s as well. It's not something I've looked a lot into, but I really want to when I'm in the right headspace because I'd be really curious to see if there's like actual research into this. Um, But it is definitely uh, something that happens often enough that I think there are some links there around how perpetrators um, manage to suss out people who are vulnerable and people who have had previous experiences of of sexual violence. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Uh, But so my first experience of sexual violence um, was at the hands of a family member. Um, So he was my maternal grandfather. Um, So at the time, look, it's complicated, as we know, with um, child sexual abuse happen and often they happen well before kind of direct contact offences, you know what I mean, like specific incidents of molestation or or uh, rape or other kinds of abuse. So it's kind of difficult to give a start date to that process of sexual abuse. Um, but I do know that by uh, the age of nine, um, I was I was uh, I have distinct memories of being fearful of uh, being raped um, by him specifically and being very careful in what I wore. Um, so wearing clothing that would give him like decreased access to my vagina um, and my genitals. So that sort of is, I guess, an indicator to me that at least by that stage there had been contact offences enough that I had learnt to wear really long pants, really long shirts and then long jackets, even on really hot days, that kind of thing, um, because being exposed in my genital region in any way through shorts or a skirt or whatever, like, uh, wasn't very safe around him. So that was sort of by age nine. Um, And then I have sort of distinct memories of certain incidents of um, rape and other kinds of molestation that went on for uh, quite a long period. Um, The final incident was right before my 12th birthday, so sort of a three- to four-year period of pretty regular um, uh, rape and molestation and other kinds of abuse um, by him. And it's interesting, I think, looking back on it now, at the time, um, at the time I felt like people must know, you know what I mean? Like you think when, when something happens um, regularly and it wasn't always um, in a private space either. So a lot of the time it was, most of the time it was well when we were on our own or he would get me alone somehow. But sometimes uh, some of the like lower level offences would happen while we were sitting with family. So like if I'm sitting on his lap at a you know family dinner or something like that. And so I think there's this part of your kid brain that goes like, sh- like surely people like can see what's happening or, or, 
or the fact that he felt so comfortable, like maybe this is okay, not okay, but like maybe maybe it's kind of normal or maybe it's not as big a deal as it feels to me. And I felt that for a really long time, but then I had a really, I sort of got mad and it was probably the first time in my life I got really, really angry. It's a really powerful moment um, and I feel... I feel sad that I couldn't vocalise it at the time, but it was one of the last um, times incidents of abuse where he had gotten me alone um, in his study Um, and I think uh, he didn't rape me that time because I was starting to really like, like uh, I couldn't speak, but I started to resist, if that makes sense. Like there was kind of this... Um, I used to just like freeze or just kind of like zone out. Whereas in that incident, I was kind of like, I was mad. Like I had my fists bold and I just kind of was like, I, I clearly had some intensity about me um, that yeah. was kind of new. And I remember really distinctly thinking, so I was 11 at this point, um, thinking, I wish I could say to him, why don't you just hurry up and rape me and we can get this over with? Like I really wanted to to say that because I knew if I were to say that, it would really confront, like he would be really confronted by that because I kind of had this sense that he felt like I didn't really know how bad what he was doing was. Yeah. And I felt like I had this moment where I was like, I want him to know that I know, like I know you're fucked for what you're doing to me. And I just couldn't get it out. And I feel sad for me then, like, because I feel like, damn, that would have been a really, like, what a powerful moment if you could have. And, of course, like, super understandable that I didn't and why so many of us can't in in those circumstances kind of get those words out or vocalise in the way that we, we might want to or react physically in the way that we might want to. Um, but I also feel kind of proud that, like, that was even in my head, like this little yeah. moment of, like, resistance, like, fuck you, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> Like, don't sit here and think I don't know <laughs> that this is fucked and and that I'm not, like, holding this against you. You know what I mean? Like, don't think I'm walking out of this room and feeling fine about what's happened here, you know? Um, so, yeah, but I hadn't, I hadn't told anyone. And then it was just with my 12th birthday. Um, so I was in year seven at school. And uh, that was the last time. Um, and then the next day, so he, he and my grandmother were visiting us down in the southeast um, at their rental, like their well, like holiday home was the last sort of specific instance of abuse. And then the next day we had gone to this like coastal town um, for like school holidays or whatever. And we went to this fish and chip shop to get lunch for everyone and my grandma said like oh Jen you go in with grandpa um to pick up the food and I said I don't want to I don't want to go which I'd never done before and it was weird like you could see her going like huh like it was weird to her it's like out of nowhere why what's the problem so she made me go but she kind of like forced me to go which like of course she didn't know what what she was doing but like there was this part of me then because she made me go in with him she's like don't be stupid Jen like go in go in and help grandpa I then like my brain went oh she knows and she's like cool with this like she's 
she's on board and thinks that whatever's happening here is that I should go and and just sit with it. Yeah. So I was like, oh, fuck. Like, because all along I hadn't thought anyone, I was like, maybe people know, but I couldn't really tell. And then that made me think, oh, like people know. Um, And you've got that courage as well to, you know, from that previous instance and then you've, what you would have had to build up to say no in that moment and to be rejected. So what might seem like a small thing to an outsider, yeah, you probably at that time you've built up this and you've, you're getting there. And then you said no, and it wasn't like, and you can just see the impact obviously as you're going Mm. through that that's had that it's like, now it's like, Oh, everyone knows that this is. Yeah. And I guess if that's been like the constant grooming theme as well for what you've experienced for years, of course it makes sense. Yeah. So I was like, oh, fuck. And we went into this fish and chip shop. I have like, it's such a visceral memory. I can smell it. I can like taste the air. I can still see everyone's faces. It's really, really visceral. And while we were waiting to get the food, um, he apologized to me. So he took this moment and he said, so we're sitting there. So he would have been like, I would have been 11, nearly 12. And he would have been maybe like 50-ish, 51, 52, um, sitting at this table diagonally. And he put his hand on my leg. And I remember being like, isn't anyone noticing? Like, that's weird. Like I'd kind of reached this point in my, whether it was developmentally or in my brain where it's just like, this is weird. Like, and surely if other people saw this, they would be like, that's, that's weird that a 50 year old's like putting his hand on her leg. Um, but he wanted, he said, oh, I really want to apologize. Like, I know what I've been doing is not right. Um, and I just couldn't say anything. And he said, so like, it's just really hard though. Um, because you look so much older, you look like you're 15 and like, so it's hard to resist. Like you look so much older than you are, which is true. I did get boobs early, but not at nine. Um, also uh, like, like 15 like is 15. still illegal. Well, That's so still this is the thing. It gave me a complex for fucking years. Cause I was like, Jesus Christ, 15 must be rough. Like apparently at 15, like all the adults can do whatever the fuck they want. Oh so I was like, gosh. Jesus, oh, no. Like this isn't, even if it's over with him, like it's not over. Yeah. Anyway. It just <laughs> so, shows your innocence though and how naive and young you were. Like not naive yeah. in a sense to put no, something on you, but to say you're taking these words as very literal. Literal. And, very literal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, that, so that was sort of the excuse like, oh, it looks like you are 15 but um, I'm not going to do it anymore, I promise. Um, and we don't need to tell anyone, obviously, because we'll just upset everybody. The, the old classics um, of, of the CSA perpetrator. No one needs to know. Um, and I guess in some ways I'm quite lucky. I mean, he didn't threaten my family. You know what I mean? Like some people um, get real nasty with that. No one needs to know. Some people use threats and other things. I think in my case he didn't. he didn't need to for whatever reason or chose not to. Um, and again, that was a moment where I had just like, I wanted to lose my shit. Like I wanted to scream. I wanted to like throw the table over. I wanted to be like, call the cops. Like I just felt so strongly like that part of myself. But of course we learn our whole lives. I think, especially young girls, like to not make a scene and to, 
you know, not embarrass anyone and to not embarrass yourself and to um, that making a scene won't actually help you. Um, so I didn't make a scene. Um, yep. I got back in the car and then we drive home. It was like a 45 hour long drive home and we had to pull over because I vomited like three times. Like, I hadn't eaten anything, just like viscerally um, emotional. And interestingly, when I got in the car for the drive home, I was like in my head, I was like, I'm telling everyone. Like I was so angry. I was like, as soon as I get home, like I'm telling mom, I'm telling, I'm going to scream at grandma for making me go in with him. Like I'm going to blow this shit up. And then by the time I got home, I didn't say a word. Like I'd convinced myself, like no one needs to know. It's just going to upset everyone. What even happened? Like how would you even describe it? You know, all of those, those messages that we still feel sometimes about ourselves today. Yeah. As we said before, um, so I got home and uh, mum was like, oh, you've got a stomach bug. You've been been vomiting. And it was like, oh, yeah, I guess that's that's the story we go with because I didn't really know what else to say. And then a couple months later, so I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones in that it was quite a short time between abuse and disclosure. So like statistically for women um, or uh, female presenting people that have experienced um child sexual abuse, the, the, usually the delay between um, the end of the abuse and the disclosure is 20 years, 20.4, I think. And for men and boys, it's 25 years. <clears throat> um, so I was one of the very kind of lucky few that had this really amazing family structure that meant um, the delay was like three months. I was really fortunate. <laughs> um, so three months later, my grandparents are coming down for another visit and I wanted to go to this like uh, like this youth event with my friends and my parents like no you can't because like the family's coming you've got to got to be at family dinner and I just like <laughs> I love it like 12 year old me was just like fuck that fuck that shit so I was like <laughs> I just threw out there so my mom was saying no Jen like you can't go hang with your friends you need to be here for family dinner and I said you don't know what he's been doing to me and she just was like <gasps> oh my God. And she knew immediately what I meant. <clears throat> so uh, like, there's part of me that's like, Jesus, Jen, like your poor mom was just setting what seemed like a normal boundary. Like, no, come to family dinner. And you were just like, but I, for whatever reason, got ready, <laughs> got angry enough and, um, and let it out. Yeah. So I was just, yeah, a couple of 12 and two or three months old. My parents were amazing. Like they were really good. Like immediate, immediate belief. No, no questions asked from the perspective of like, um, what do you mean or is this real? Like it was like it's definitely real. Yeah. Um, my mum did try to kind of get a sense of like what had happened from a health perspective. So she was kind of, so she was kind of trying to say like, can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean? Um, you mean he's been touching you sexually and like has he touched here or here sort of from the perspective of like do we need to get you to a doctor like where are we at in terms of that yeah. stuff um, and at the time all I could say was that he had touched my breasts that was it that was as much as I could um, disclose at the time um, so they were amazing they uh, unfortunately uh, everyone, like the family were all on the road down to our house though by that stage. 
so they couldn't actually stop them coming. Um, so they packaged me off to my really good friend's house <clears throat> for the weekend. I got to have my girls' weekend. It was great. Um, we sat up and watched Clueless and uh, enjoyed ourselves a lot. Uh, it's quite a good memory, actually. Uh, yeah, then then confronted him about it. Um, he said, yes, I have been doing that. Um, and when they asked why, he said he didn't really know. And then he said to them, well, you know, like I've done her a favour because she needs to learn that the world's not a safe place sometime. Oh, um, God. Yeah. Uh, said that, so he said that with my grandma and my mum and dad there. Yeah, so I can't look. That's, that's you, horrible. That's pretty horrible. No, to have no empathy around the situation. None. But they would have confronted him with what you told them. Was there yeah. an extra disclosure from him or do you think maybe it was strategic for him to be like that in that sense and be like, yes, because obviously he knows that it is a lot worse. Yeah. Um, this is what I try. Like I go back and forth about like is he a psychopath? Is he um, a, pe- a pedophile? Um, is he, I mean, he's lots of things. He's probably lots of things. I think he's a very intelligent person, um, who, uh, was very careful. And so I think he probably kept his discussion to a minimum (coughs) and quite possibly said something very offensive to kind of distract from further questions, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, cause I think that, that in my mind, I go, why would somebody say that with, the witnesses that are there being your daughter, your partner, and the spouse. But, mm. I mean, if if your disclosure is not being penetrative sex or anything like that, it's been groping, it's almost like a lesser thing, it's less yeah. potentially embarrassing. And it just seems mm. like, and I know this isn't the same thing, but I had this very same kind of woman in my life. I actually did episode seven was about how much she mm. kind of controlled and abused me for many years mm. as a friend. Um, but there was money missing from an event that we were at one time and mm. she just pulled her pants down immediately. She never wore underwear and everyone's like, okay, okay, okay. Like you didn't, yeah. you didn't take yeah. anything. And it kind of seems like that. It's like, you're having this major like a distraction reaction going, look over here. There's something shiny because again, yeah. later you're almost building a case for yourself to say, no, she, she must be making it up now. I did admit to what I did in the beginning yes. and I didn't care about it, but now I can deny yeah. anything further or something. Like, Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's something that's really stuck with me. I mean, not only because it's like a obviously a horrific thing to say, but yeah. it stuck with me as as there was something more to that, like as in that I don't think, like I think he's too smart to actually say that mm. um, because it's what he thinks. Like, I think he's too intelligent to genuinely just believe, like, oh, I did her a favour and I should tell her parents that. Like, I think it was that kind of distraction or that kind of deflection um, that is then what that it has the most impact in that moment. Um, and it also shuts down things, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, so as it was left, they kind of said, well, you are, not welcome anywhere near us ever again and um, we'll be taking this to the police. Interestingly, uh, my grandma in the weeks afterwards had asked him if I was the only one 
And he said no, meaning the only person that he'd been sexually abusive to. So he wrote her a list. Um, And again, I think it's a similar thing. I think he wrote a list of people he had um, been um, on the minor end of the scale in terms of sexually abusive towards. There were 12 or 13 um, women and young girls on that list, Um, quite a few who have verified that they were sexually abused by him at various ages and stages. So it's a pretty prolific offender. And um, he was also very sexually violent to my grandmother throughout their marriage. So I think it's something that there's certainly some pathology there around sexual violence. But I do wonder a lot about that list being a similar thing to that, that like hateful statement, you know what I mean? Like that kind of, I'll give you these names because I was like, you know, gropey and gross with them, but perhaps I'll leave off a few um, that have had much more serious experiences with me. Yeah. Um, that we kind of never will know, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, the next step was to go to the police. Um, my mum was terrified that child protection would remove me from their care. Um because she she didn't have much experience. She didn't really know. Ironically, she's now a social worker and very across those systems. But at the time, um, she didn't really know much about those systems. And so she kind of had this horror thought of like, you know, if your child gets abused um, in your home, even though you had no control over it, like they're going to take her away because we didn't care for her. Um, so she was really scared about going to the police from that perspective. But um, she did it anyway. Um, and... What they did was arrange for one of the local detectives to come to our house and so that we could sit around the kitchen table. It would be a bit more um, informal. Um, And, yeah, I mean, this is in a lot of senses where the horror story began um, because he was a fucking useless asshole, (laughs) if I can say, an FUA. Um, (laughs) It's what he was. He was Sergeant useless no I don't even think he would have been a sergeant what would he be constable dickhead um <laughs> spell out this the way that it sounds as well it's not a c constable yeah. constable C-U-N- dick it's a c-u-n-t-stable <laughs> like yeah so look it's not in modern modern era in terms of csa but it sure as fuck is not like the 60s 70s and 80s you know what I'm saying like we're not we're not talking ancient history uh, in terms of police processes, um, no, but I had got coloured TV. They had a, yeah, a, yeah, access you know. to a history of things. They yeah. had you could send an email to maybe a specialist in Adelaide and get some advice. You know, I think there's, I think there's some. You could uh, pick up the no, phone. No. You could send faxes. Like it's just, yeah, you know, it's a cop out. And I only want to harp on yeah. that because I'm so sick of the cop out of being like, it was a different time. It's like yeah. when, when in the history of the universe, in has it been okay to sexually molest or abuse yeah. your granddaughter? Yeah. Um, I think even from the sense of it being incestuous, even if you don't think of mm. it in terms of age, right? there's still it's not okay within the community. Mm. It's not okay no. within every, like So it's just it's not the actions aren't reflective of what the no. problem is. And I think that I just wanted to highlight that mm. I fucking hate that cop out that it was like, yeah. It was a different time. It's like it really wasn't. I mean, it was. It really but wasn't. It's like, 
But it wasn't. Like, it really, to, really wasn't. <laughs> I'm trying to situate it. I'm like, there was colour TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we're talking post-millennium, folks. Yeah. Like we're not, we're not, we're not talking last century or even the century before. Um, yeah. yeah. So he was, oh, and I, that's a real visceral memory too. Sitting at our kitchen table with the cup of tea that my mum had made him. And he's just like, oh, <laughs> uh, like sitting, like um, reclined back, kind of like chill, chill in his chair, like wide stance, kind of arm on the, resting on the table, kind of having a yarn, but in this really patronising way. And he, what he was like, uh, with my parents there, it was tricky because I know it's important to not interview like a child. You have to be very specific and careful about that. Police have very specific processes around interviewing children in relation to this sort of offending especially. He didn't follow any of them. Um, but sitting at this kitchen table, he's going, okay, so he touched your breasts. So how did he do that then? What do you mean by touching your breasts? Right, so did he have, did he have an open palm or a closed fist? Do you use fingers? Did he use, like, uh, trying to, like, all of this detail? And I couldn't say, like, I didn't know what to say. So, of course, I go to the most minimised version because I'm like, this is confronting and scary and my parents are here and it's, like, weird. And the vibe, like, the very clear energy from you is, like, you don't want to hear about it. Like, (laughs) so I'm just like, okay, no worries. I'll give you, like, the real minimal (laughs) level. And um, he then looks at me, like, so then my mom says, so what's kind of the process from here? And then he looks at my face, my 12-year-old face, and then he turns to my mom and he goes, look, I mean, it's really just going to end up being her word against his, so I wouldn't bother. Just popping in here to close up this conversation, part one with Jen. We will be back this time next week with part two. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.